I've entitled my message this weekend, True Qualifications. True Qualifications. And I want to remind you all of what happened about a few months ago. Pastor Lance was on the pulpit, and he shared a word with our congregation. And if you were there, it was a word that was actually pretty significant in my mind. Before he had his normal message, he stood up here and he said, many of us disqualify ourselves from what God has asked us to do because we feel like we are not good enough. We feel like we don't have the giftings, we don't have the personality type, we don't have the specific purpose or reason or ability to carry out his task. And what Pastor Lance said, which I thought was so important, was he said, we need to stop disqualifying ourselves and start saying yes to what he has called us to. This word was really significant for me because throughout 2020 and up until even today, I kept finding myself in personality conversations about, you know, Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, those type of tests, or even strength finders, right? And every time these conversations would get a little bit heated because many of us, let's be honest, we love talking about ourselves. And many times we are like, well, I'm good at this, but you're not so good at this, right? When we're talking to our spouses or friends or siblings, right? We get in these personality conversations and we're like, oh, you would be that type of person or you would be that type of person, right? And almost every time I would walk away from one of these personality conversations, I would feel a little bit discouraged, and that, that word kept coming back in my mind. And throughout 2020 up until now, I, I was being taught about personality tests. Pastor Lance himself went to winter retreat with us in HSM this last winter. And he talked about personality tests. And at the end of the time, still, I'm like, why, why do I have this ickiness in my spirit? And I believe many of us have those same thoughts when we talk about personalities. And so I thought something that would be fun and something I need you to do for a second is I want you to look inside to face your personality type. And I thought a fun way for us to do that is to talk about a different test in the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs or even the Strength Finder, and it's an older test called the Four Temperaments. And so what I'm gonna do here in a second is I'm gonna go through the Four Temperaments. And why I love this personality test is because it connects each personality type to a Winnie the Pooh character. So if you don't know anything I'm talking about, just picture Winnie the Pooh and the show, and you can kind of understand what we're talking about here. And if, if I say a personality type that you believe is, is you, I'd love some participation of like, woo-woo, or yeah, or that's me, or something like that. Can we do that? Yeah? All right, good. Here we go. Number one, the first personality test, personality type in the four temperaments is this, the powerful caloric. The powerful caloric. This is connected to uh, the Winnie the Pooh character, Rabbit. And if you are, are a caloric, that means your strengths are you're determined, you're independent, you're optimistic, you're practical, you're decisive. This is the personality type that is a leader. Many times when a, when a powerful caloric walks into the room, everybody else turns and listens to them. And whatever they ask or tell you to do, most people follow them. They have this natural ability to, to walk everybody into what they've asked them to. But just like any personality type, the powerful caloric, they have weaknesses. 
A caloric can be angry, sarcastic, domineering, proud, unemotional, cold. There we go. <laughs> Knew it was going to happen at some point. The, the core need of a caloric is they need control, right? They, if they don't have control, let's be honest, over somebody else or themselves or their life, they feel like their life is spiraling out of control. That's where anxiety looms. That's when they don't feel like they can succeed in the way that they're supposed to. That's me. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> the number, uh, number two of the four temperaments test is the popular sanguine. Popular sanguine. Calm down. I understand. <laughs> this is the Tigger character and Winnie the Pooh. This is the personality type that they walk into the room and everyone's like, yes, they're here. They made it, right? They're the life of the party. If you go on a, on a camping trip, if you go on a, a friend trip, you always have to invite your sanguine friend or you won't have fun. <laughs> this, this is the personality type that, man, they really enjoy hanging out with people and making things fun. The strengths of a sanguine is they're talkative, outgoing, enthusiastic, friendly, warm. This is the personality type that loves to be friends. When you talk to this personality type, you walk away and you're like, man, I just feel better. Man, they, I just feel better when I'm around them. I, I just want to always hang out with them because they're just an awesome person, right? They're a good friend. You're welcome. The weaknesses, <laughs> weaknesses of a sanguine is they could be unstable, or restless, or egocentric, or undisciplined, disorganized, or fearful. Sanguine, because they have so many things going on in their head and they just want to be a part of everything, they end up being disorganized because most of the time what they're doing is just jumping up and down and being all excited. And then they're like, wait, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? And the core need of a sanguine, it's not much of a shock, is they need fun. Um, if they don't have fun, it's hard for them to function. If, if they don't have fun, then they don't know what to do. The third personality type is the peaceful phlegmatic. Peaceful phlegmatic. This character is connected to Winnie the Pooh himself. Winnie the Pooh is a peaceful phlegmatic. The strengths of a phlegmatic is they're calm, dependable, easygoing, efficient, conservative, this is the personality type that no matter where their life is at, whether they have the highest of highs in a mountaintop experience or the lowest of lows in the valley, they are even keel. Very rarely do they have super strong emotions or not any emotion at all. They're kind of always even keel, right? And the peaceful phlegmatic, they're, they're dependable and easygoing because they are always very efficient with what they're doing. You can always count on them. If they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. The weaknesses of a phlegmatic is they're stingy at times, they're indecisive, they're, they can be a spectator. A caloric may be in the front lines leading people, but a phlegmatic is in the back or in the middle, just kind of staying in their lane. This also can make them selfish because they like their comfortable spot and they don't want to get out of it. Also, a phlegmatic can be unmotivated because when we're stuck in a box, it's hard to get out of it, isn't it? The core need for a phlegmatic is they need peace. Uh, this is not a personality type that you find in arguments a lot. In fact, when you get in an argument with a peaceful phlegmatic, they are probably going to find a very quick way to get out. 
Whether that be, you know, saying I'm sorry even when they didn't do anything wrong or literally just walking away. They need to have peace to sleep at night. That is their core need. Last but not least, we have the perfect melancholy. And if you are a melancholy, I'm a melancholy, and I have good news for you. The Winnie the Pooh character that you are most like is Eeyore. Yeah! Don't you want to be like Eeyore? Yeah. Man, I want to be like Eeyore. My favorite thing about being a melancholy is I think back to the uh, Winnie the Pooh ride in Disneyland. If you've ridden it, I don't know if they've changed it since last I wrote it, but it's all about Winnie the Pooh and his birthday, you know, his birthday party. And at the very end of the ride, as you're about to leave, all you hear is Eeyore saying, if you don't like my present, I'll take it back, right? And I just started laughing. My dad and I were laughing the first time we rode that ride because we were like, that's me. I'm pretty sure every birthday party I've, I've been to, I'm like, if you don't like my present, I'll take it back, right? That's, that's just how I am sometimes. And if you're a melancholy, you have strengths, and your strengths are this. You are gifted, analytical, sensitive, which may be a bad thing, but it can be a good thing as well. Uh, perfectionist also can be a bad thing, but can be a good thing. And my favorite thing about being a melancholy is that we are super loyal. When a melancholy picks their people, they stick with them. They're super, super loyal. But melancholies have weaknesses as well. They are moody, negative, self-centered, unsociable, and even impractical. In fact, if you look at most of a list of who a melancholy is, they're going to have the word negative on there multiple times. Because melancholies have created this, this, this stigma of their personality type that they are negative, tend to be negative. And the core need of a melancholy is perfection, which I think it's really interesting that the core need of a melancholy is something that cannot even be attained. That can be frustrating. And that's why they're moody. <laughs> so why did I go through this, these personality types? Why did I ask you to look inward for a second? If many of you are like me, which I have an idea that you are, when I was going through all the different personality types and when I was talking about you specifically, all you were thinking about is, man, I wish I was something different. Man, I wish... I wish I'm like a different personality type. I, I, I wish, actually, I had giftings in, in something else. You see, sanguines wish that people took them more seriously. Melancholies wish that they were less negative. Phlegmatics wish that they knew how to make decisions quicker and more efficiently. Calorics wish, oh wait, they think they're perfect, so they don't <laughs> wish anything. But actually, calorics wish that people would have the confidence to go up and talk to them because many times calorics give off this intimidation factor to the people who are around them. And if you take the four temperaments test, you have one main personality type and then you have a secondary. And I am a melancholy phlegmatic. So what does that mean? I'm a boring negative person. <laughs> Yippee. And then I took that, when I first took the test, I took it a step further and I said, wait, I'm a boring negative person that's a youth pastor. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> and, then, and then my thoughts started to spiral even more, being a melancholy. 
I'm a boring negative person who's a youth pastor. Hold up, why am I a youth pastor? Because youth pastors are supposed to be the sanguine types, right? They're supposed to be the ones who are jumping super high energy all the time, right? And, and w- when they walk to the room, all their students are like, yeah, he's here, whoa! Like leading games, and he's really excited to lead in games, and like they really create this atmosphere of fun. Like that's what youth pastors are supposed to be about. But I'm a boring negative person. How does, how does that make sense? But then the Lord gave Pastor Lance this word, and I'm like, huh. But what if, what if I'm supposed to be this way for a purpose? What if God made us for a specific purpose? What would happen if we stopped wanting to be like somebody else and leaned into our own giftings? What would our capacity be then? This leads us to the fill in the blank that's on the bulletin, but also on the app. And it's this, stop disqualifying yourself. Stop disqualifying yourself. Too often do we find ourselves comparing ourselves to one another. We've heard the age old statement of comparison is the thief of all joy. We've heard it many times. We don't believe it. Why? Because we continue to compare ourselves to other people, whether it be coworkers, siblings, friends. We want to be like them because if we're like them, then our lives would be better. If we're like them, then we would be more efficient. If we're like them, then man, all of our problems would just go away. See, the comparison trap compels us to turn inward, to focus on ourselves, what we lack, and what causes our discontentment. And as I look throughout scripture, I think looking inwards is important. I think God has asked us many times to look inwards, but what he's not asking is for us to look so far inwards that we start disqualifying ourselves for what he has for us. That is not what he's asking us to do. And there's many of us, all of us in this room, we are qualified, and yet we don't even notice it because we're too busy being our own worst enemies. And I believe today that God is asking you to start believing in yourself and believing in what God has set before you. So how we're gonna do that is we're gonna look through two different stories in scripture that is gonna help us understand this a little bit more. If you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter three. And I know Pastor Lance last weekend said that we are done with Exodus, but just one more week and then we're done, okay? Just one more week. But we're gonna first talk about Moses. I love Moses because he is a textbook melancholy. He's emotional, he's exaggerative, and he's super moody. I love Moses, I can connect with him. But Moses, I think, has so many reasons why he should be running the opposite direction of what God has asked him to do. Let's think about it for a second. Moses was born into a culture in Egypt where every male Israelite was supposed to be killed. So his parents didn't want that to happen, put him in a river. He goes down to Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's daughter sees the cute baby and is like, I'm going to raise this child as my own. So Moses is being raised by the enemies of his family. So he's in two worlds. And he's living like this. And he knows this 
his entire life until it gets to a breaking point where he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite and his anger just overwhelms him and he kills the Egyptian. And then he flees to Midian, a very far way away, and he stays in Midian for a very, very long time. And he marries a woman and his father-in-law is Jethro and he becomes a shepherd. In one of his shepherding journeys, he's in the mountain of God, Mount Oreb, and he sees a burning bush, but the bush is not being consumed. So he does what any normal person would do. He goes and sees what's happening. Finds out it's God who's speaking to him. Finds out it's holy ground. Take off your shoes. And then God is saying, I've heard the cry of my people, and I've got a plan to save them, and I need you to be a part of it. Let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. God says this, come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses had every reason to disqualify himself. He was a murderer, he was a fugitive, and nobody wanted him. The Egyptians didn't want him because he just killed one of their own. The Israelites don't want him because he wasn't raised an Israelite. He doesn't know their customs. They don't trust him. Why would, why would anyone listen to Moses? So if Moses went over to Egypt, guess what? He would get thrown out instantly. So he's going to God and saying, God, why am I supposed to do this? Why are you asking me to do this? Here's what's funny. All of the objections of Moses Makes sense and are super valid. Because if he did go to Egypt, guess what? He'd probably get thrown out. Nobody would want something there. But guess what? That's beside the point. Look at the response of God in verse 12. God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, which actually happens later, which is pretty cool. But God's response to Moses' first objection is what? I will be with you. I will bring with you encouragement. I will lend you encouragement. I will restore your self-confidence, Moses. Moses, if you walk into Egypt and you're not confident at all, guess what? Because I am with you, I bring with you confidence. See, God made a promise to Jacob in Genesis chapter 46 where he said, Jacob, I'm always gonna be with Israel. They're my people. I'm always going to deliver them. And so when, he, when God hears his people crying out to him, saying, God, we need help, he can't help it but help his people. And you would think Moses would, would be excited to be part of this plan that's gonna change the history books and be all like, yeah, I wanna be part of God's plan. No, he's a melancholy, so he's like, no, I don't wanna do it. I don't. I have so many reasons why I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not the right person for this job. What would you do if you're in Moses' shoes? When I was 10 years old, I'd been playing drums for about four years. And I got to the part in my drumming career where my limbs weren't understanding to do different things at different times. And it was getting really frustrating. And I would practice and practice and practice and I would try to figure out how to fix it and I would go to my drum teacher's house and he would teach me and I would understand what he's saying but I could never get it. So what did I do? I was 10 years old. I went home to my parents and I said, I'm done. 
I can't do this anymore. I quit. And my parents, more specifically my dad, he, he turned to me and he said, you know what, I understand your anger. I understand your frustration, but I'm gonna ask you to continue. Just keep going, just a couple more weeks. I, you have a gifting, I see it in you. You got this. And I was really frustrated by that. Why would he force me to do something that I didn't wanna do? I'm sure many of us have been forced to do something we didn't wanna do, or we forced other people into doing something they didn't wanna do. But why do we do something like that? For their own good. You know, I'm so thankful that my parents forced me to push it just a little bit longer, because if it wasn't for me being able to play the drums, I don't know if I would have met the Lord the way I did. In fact, I hear God better behind the drum set than anyone else, anywhere else. In fact, the very first day I was in youth group, the youth pastor forced me on the worship team because I knew how to play the drums. And from that moment, I just encountered God behind the drum set. Now, God would have encountered me in other ways, probably in my life, if I didn't know how to play drums, but I'm so glad it happened this way. And I'm thankful for my, for my parents' persistence and faithfulness towards their son. And Moses is in the same predicament where he is being forced to do something that he doesn't want to do. But God is trying to communicate, Moses, it's for your own good. And maybe some of you today, you're here and you're like, man, God is asking me to do something I don't want to do. But guess what? What if it's for a purpose? I'm going to continue reading in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So first, Moses says, I can't do this. And then he continues and says, no one thinks I can do this. We don't notice this in the story many times when we read it, but Moses is actually more concerned about what the Israelites think of him than the Egyptians. Because he knows the Egyptians probably aren't going to listen to him, and that's, and that's normal. But the fact that Moses is supposed to lead the Israelites, he's concerned because he knows they won't trust him. So again and again in this conversation with God, Moses is like, but, the, but, but Israel, but, but Israel, they don't think of me how they should, or they don't trust me. Ooh. How many times have we been too afraid of somebody else's opinions of our capabilities so we don't do it? Right, we, we get into the room where we're, where everybody else is waiting for an interview and you look around and you're like, man, all these people are better than me. I'm just gonna leave. Man, you're not gonna be up for that job because you don't feel like you're good enough. How many times have we been so afraid of somebody else's opinion of our capabilities and we dip out because we feel like, man, they're probably right. I can't do this. I love what the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians brings to this conversation. He says something so profound in Galatians 1. He says this, if I'm trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of God. Whew. Is that convicting for anybody else? 
If I'm trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of God. Here's what Paul's saying. He's like, look, we can't have a divided mind. We can't have a divided mind. If we're trying to please man with all we have, then it's impossible to also be a servant of God. It doesn't make sense that way. We can't have our minds in two camps. Because what ends up happening, if we get forced to make a decision or get thrown into a trial, our mind just gets discombobulated and confused, and we don't know what's up and we don't know what's down. So we got to ask ourselves the question is, are we trying to please man or are we trying to please God? This is not sustainable. This is. Moses, again, is in the same predicament of, okay, who am I trying to please? God's response to this question that Moses has of what am I supposed to say to them if they ask me who's, who's talking and God says, say, I am the I am. In Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh. It is God's self-identification of who he is. God's like, tell them I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Yahweh brings the power. Yahweh brings the identity. Yahweh brings the purpose. Yahweh is on whose authority Moses is speaking. And Yahweh is enough for both Moses and the Israelites to not even question on what's going down. Because Yahweh is the name that's going to bring with it everything. And that should be enough for Moses. It should be enough for the Israelites. For the rest of our time together today, I'm going to give you four things on how we can best view God in order to stop disqualifying ourselves. We're going to talk through Scripture, and then I'll pause for a second and give you another point. And the first one is this. God's power is what allows us to carry out his will. God's power is what allows us to carry out his will. Maybe just like Moses, all of our objections of what God has asked us to do are valid. We can't talk. We don't know what to say. We don't have the boldness. We don't have the confidence, right? We, we give God all of these lists of why we shouldn't be doing what he's asked us to. Maybe they're valid, but guess what? They're beside the point. Why? Because say, for example, if God asks us to go up to a stranger and tell them about Jesus and tell them how much they are loved and desired and seen by God, and we're like, man, I've never done that before. How am I supposed to do that? Beside the point, why? Because when we step over to start talking to that person, God's power is the one that carries out his will, not our own. God's power is the one that allows us to carry out what he's asked us to do. Man, I'm so thankful that it's not on me Man, if it was on my own power, man, I fail all the time. But God, throughout all of this story, God is like, I'm here and you're going to do it on my authority. So Moses, step with confidence. We're going to skip to chapter 4 of Exodus because Moses is not done complaining. He's not done disqualifying himself. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says this, but behold... They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Apparently, God's name is not good enough for Moses, and it won't be good enough for the Israelites. So Moses is like, I need more. They're still not going to believe me. They're still going to listen to me, because apparently, you didn't show up to me. So God doesn't get frustrated. You would think he would, but he doesn't. After all of the things that Moses is asking and saying how much he's not good enough, 
God is still being kind and gracious to Moses. And he's like, fine, let me show you some things of why I'm here and the fact that I am here. Moses drops his staff, becomes a snake, crazy. Then God's like, pick up the snake. Moses is like, what? You want me to pick up that snake? Yeah. Picks up the snake, becomes a staff. Right? He's proving to Moses, yeah, I'm, I am who I'm, I say I am. I'm Yahweh. Now go. But do you think that was good enough for Moses? Nope. Let's skip down to verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, or your brother, the Levi? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now, we don't know for sure if Moses had some sort of speech impediment or a lisp. It's probably a lisp. Or what I think, potentially, is since Moses is a textbook melancholy, he was just exaggerating. Because that's what melancholies do. If you, if you even um, ask Pastor Brian, anytime I'm debriefing a Wednesday night or an event that HSM does, Brian has to tell himself, it's never as bad as what you say. Because <laughs> as a melancholy, I see the negative and then I exaggerate on the negative. Because that's what we do. And I, I think that's what Moses is doing here, potentially. Maybe, maybe he has some sort of list, but is that really a reason for him to disqualify himself? No, he's just trying to find any Reason to get out of this task. God reminds him again, says, I created you. I created your mouth. I can tell you, I will teach you what to say. Just go. Moses has yet to learn that his circumstances are not the proper light in which to view his call. This brings us to number two and how we can better view God to stop disqualifying ourselves is this, our calling has way more significance than our ability. Man, that's good. I'm going to say it again. Our calling has way more significance than our ability. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, before he leaves, he turns to his disciples and he tells us even, he says, go into the nations and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Throughout all of Jesus' ministry, there's two things he lands on. He said, I need you guys to love others, to love me first and my Father and love others. He says, love God and love others. Those are the two things that he's asked us to do. And every person in this room and watching online, that is our core calling. And yet, what do we do? We get caught up on specifics. Oh, wait, God, I don't love you like this other person does. They, they do it in such a beautiful way. Father, I don't know how to love other people. It doesn't make sense to me. I, stop asking me to do this. I'm not good enough. And we get caught up in the specifics, right? But we must be reminded that our calling is way more significant than our ability. It doesn't mean that our abilities are insignificant. It means they, lat, they matter less than our calling. I'll tell you what, in my job as being a youth pastor, 
Many times I walk away on any one of our services and I'm asking the question of God, why? Why am I doing this? No one's listening to me. I'm not seeing any fruit. They're watching TikTok videos all the time. Those of you who know my story, I'm so thankful that throughout my story, God was so clear in his calling on my life. He was so clear when he said it to me when I I took my undergrad at Jessup. He said, Cliff, you're going into youth ministry. And in those moments where I face doubt, when I face insecurity, I'm reminded of the calling I have on my life. And man, that gives me confidence to keep going because I know he knows better than me. And what he's told me to do is way more important than me trying to figure out how to do it. In those moments when we start disqualifying ourselves because we're not doing it the right way, I want us to answer this question. Are we loving God? Are we loving others to our best ability? If the answer is yes, that's what matters more. When we start spiraling and start getting more specific, that's when things fall apart. Then Moses eventually in this conversation gets to a point where he says, God, send somebody else. I want you to imagine you are a parent for a second. And your child walks up to you and your child says, well, you turn to your child and you say, clean your room. And your child looks up to you and says, no. Maybe some of you have experienced this. What do you do as a parent? Do you discipline them? Do you, you know, send them on timeout? Do you crown them? I know for me, if I ever did anything like that to my parents, I'd lose dessert, which was a big deal. I didn't want to lose dessert, right? What do you do? You probably get frustrated, you probably get angry. And that's what God does. He gets angry when Moses is just like, no. But then he shows his character. He shows his grace for Moses, which is the same grace he's gonna extend to us. And he gives Moses help. He's like, you know your brother Aaron, I'm gonna send him to you. He's in Egypt. I'm gonna send him to Midian so that he can help you and support you. Man, that's a, that's a good and kind God, isn't it? Even though Moses continues to disqualify himself, God is listening and gives him a way to help. So that brings us to number three and how we can better view God and stop disqualifying ourselves. And it's this, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. We've heard this statement before, it's not something that I've come up with, but we sometimes don't understand or think about it a little bit more to know what God's trying to say. God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. He doesn't call somebody who's perfect for the job. In fact, he never calls somebody who's so prideful in their abilities that they miss on whose authority they're carrying out the task. He rarely ever calls that person. But he calls the person who maybe thinks to themselves, I am not good enough, but I understand that he is, and him working through me is enough, and his power when I step is enough. So when he calls me to do something, then I know he's going to equip me to carry out said task. So if God says, go talk to that person about me, man, he's going to equip you. Maybe you haven't noticed it, but he will. Man, if, if I was God in this conversation with Moses, the last thing I would do was send him help. 
Sometimes I get frustrated with, with students when I'm saying, hey, you need to go do this. And they're like, oh, I can't, I can't. Just do it. And then I walk away. <laughs> I don't have that patience. But God does. And he will equip those whom he calls. Man, I'm so thankful for a God like that. Flip your Bibles over to the book of Judges, chapter 6. We're going to talk about another man who disqualified himself a bunch, and his name is Gideon. As you flip there in Judges, chapter 6, what I like to tell high schoolers is the narrative of the Old Testament, we see the Israelites falling into a cycle of sin, slavery, sorrow, salvation. And what this looks like is the, Israel, the Israelites would, would fall into slavery because of their sin. They would sin, and then they would be conquered by some nation and be put into slavery, and then they would cry out to their God and say, God, please help us. God would hear them, and he would send a Savior to save them from slavery. But then, guess what? They would sin again, and then the cycle would continue. And at this point in biblical history, we see that Israelites have sinned, and the Midianites have conquered them, which is the same Midian that Moses fled to, which I think is interesting. That's all I have to say there. Um, but the Midianites have taken over the Israelites, and we pick up the story in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now that Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So we see Gideon in a wine press threshing, which is getting rid of the seed heads from the grain. Usually this act is done outside because it helps kind of the land and also it helps, it's easier for you to thresh when you're outside. But Gideon decides to do this in a wine press, not in wine season. Why? Because he's terrified. He's terrified of the Midianites. He's terrified that his family will be found and killed. He's terrified that his grain is going to be stolen. So he's hiding out in a wine press so that nobody can see him. But then the angel of the Lord appears to him and says a very unique sentence. He says, first, the Lord is with you, which is the same thing he's been saying to Moses in that story. But then he says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. In other translations, it says mighty warrior. Hold up for a second. Why are we calling the dude who's so terrified hiding out in a wine press a mighty man of valor? This man is so terrified, he is hiding out in some small wine press. Why are we calling him a mighty man of valor? He has done nothing mighty. <laughs> he has done nothing a warrior would do. He's not been on the front lines of a war, you know, doing such miraculous and war warrior type stuff. Why are we calling him that? It's because our calling has more significance than our ability. And what the angel of God is doing in this moment is he's calling into identity of what Gideon is gonna step into. 
And I think and I believe today that God is saying the same thing about us. He's saying that we are mighty men and women of valor. We are mighty men and women warriors. And when God calls us and asks us to do something on his behalf, he is saying, go before me, mighty man and woman of valor, because I am with you and I'm gonna accomplish something great through you. But we get so caught up in our disqualifications, we miss the identity that God is giving us. Gideon is so scared that he doesn't even see how the angel of the Lord addresses him. And he's like, God, like, where is God? He just allowed Midian to conquer us, right? He just allowed them to conquer us. And all I'm hearing about is how God raised us up out of Egypt. Well, God must have left or something because he's not here anymore. You see, Gideon is he's putting expectations on God that aren't accurate. He's expecting God to, to, even before the Midianites wanted to conquer Israel, to go out and wipe them out. He's, he's asking for God to just kind of do his thing and Gideon will stay in the wine press. My wife and I just recently got a dog about two and a half months ago. She's really cute. Her name's Bentley. She's an English shepherd, which means she's super smart and super high energy. So we have to train her a bunch. And what we're working on right now is, is healing. So what that means is she's walking right here on our walks. And I'll tell you what, this is such a difficult thing to do. If you've ever had to train a dog, you understand. But what we're showing her is every time she looks up at us, she gets rewarded in a treat or food of some sort so that she knows that everything that comes from us is good. But what ends up happening on, on our walks is she goes ahead of us and starts kind of freaking out and trying to look at the other people or the other dogs and she gets all anxious and she looks back at us being like, can you come up here, please? I need my treat, right? But no, we're in charge. So we wait for her to come back to us and we're like, good girl, and we give her the treat. My neck hurts from looking down so much. But we do the same thing with God. We know where our treats come from. We know where our identity comes from, but we go ahead and we look back and we're like, God, come on. Don't you see what we're doing? Come on, I need your help. But God's like, hold up a sec. Are you in charge or am I in charge? Gideon has this expectation on God that just isn't accurate. I'm gonna continue reading in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in, in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, I send you. Gideon said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. The strength Gideon possessed was the promise of the Lord's presence with him. You see, Gideon could exchange his weakness for God's strength. And yet Gideon can still continues to say all the reasons why he shouldn't be doing this. He's at least in his father's house. His clan isn't that great. Church, there's, there's might in the consciousness of the Lord's commission but there's even greater might in the consciousness of divine companionship. 
Number four, last one, on how we can better view God, stop disqualifying ourselves, is very simple. Hang with God. Throughout the story with Gideon, throughout the story with Moses, multiple times God is saying the statement, but I will be with you. Because when we hang out with God, that's where we gain identity. When we hang out with God, that's when we gain purpose. When we hang out with God, that's when we gain direction. When we hang out with God, that's when our lives have full and true and complete purpose. But if we go off on our own, if we walk too far on our leash, then we're gonna continue to fail and continue to be frustrated. One of my favorite passages in all scripture is John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You must stay connected to me in order to bear fruit. Man, in order for us to stop disqualifying ourselves, we must be constantly hanging out with the person who calls us, with our God who identifies who we are. You see, if we're spending so much time with God, then it's gonna be very hard for us to disqualify ourselves because we already know who we are and we already know who he calls us, his own. What's the point? We need to stop disqualifying ourselves and start saying yes to what God has to what God has called you to do. Can you imagine what, what would have happened if Moses and Gideon said no? Moses, even with, with all of his objections, even with all of his insecurities, he says yes, and he brings all of Israel with God's help and his power out of Egypt. Gideon, even crazier story, Gideon says yes, yeah, there's a couple other miracles that God has to perform to prove that he is God. But Gideon says yes, and God dwindles Gideon's army down to 300. They surround the Midianite camp, and at one moment, they all blow horns, and the Midianites are so confused and scared, they start killing each other off. Isn't that crazy? Gideon doesn't even lift a finger. That's how awesome God is. What if they said no? 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 9 says this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I mentioned to you earlier that I am a boring negative person who is a youth pastor. And throughout this entire past couple of years, I've been struggling with the Lord and, and talking with him and like, Lord, Lord, why, 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 why? He said, actually, the students in your ministry need somebody who have a, need somebody who has a bigger capacity for compassion, who can relate to their emotions, who has more patience when they are emotional. They need a youth pastor who can listen to them. They need more than just someone who jumps up and down. What if your family, what if your job needs someone like you? They need a sanguine. They need a melancholy. They need a phlegmatic. They need a caloric in order for them to thrive in their best way. 
But what happens? We start disqualifying ourselves because we're like, man, I'm not good enough. I'm not made the way I'm supposed to, so I'm just going to give up. No, hold up for a second. What if you're there for a purpose? Church, we need to stop disqualifying ourselves and start saying yes to what he has for us because what he has will always be good. Will always be good. So let's leave this place today confidently as we live out the giftings he's given us for his purpose. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good. Father, thank you for the story of Moses and for the story of Gideon. Father, many of us in this room, we, we understand this concept of disqualification because we do it in our own life so many different times. God, we ask that you give us the courage to listen to your call, accept it, and start making movements towards what you've asked us to do. God, we don't want to be in the background anymore. We want to be on the forefront of your plan. So Lord, allow us to look inward enough to understand our personality type and, and give us direction for the future. God, we love you and we trust you. Your name we pray.